Oh, and just as the heat comes on, we're, we're back. Uh, this is Rachel again. Hey, oh, it's Ned. And we are still downstairs at the Drama Bookshop in Midtown Manhattan. We just finished. It's very cool. We don't normally interview this folks on the same day. This is not usually a thing. We just finished the read-through of Little Wars. That you listened to two weeks ago. And we have here our, our esteemed playwright. Hello. Hello, who are you? My name's Stephen Carl McCasland. Oh, we're so excited to have you. Little Wars was, everyone lost their minds a little bit. That was a play. That was gorgeous. That was beautiful, beautiful. Um, thank you so much for being here. Um, Thanks and, for giving us your play. Yeah, honest to thank gosh. Thank you. Um, honest to Betsy. Um, so I, I definitely want to jump into the play, but before we do, um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and where you're from and when you started writing and all that good stuff? Sure. Uh, I am 30 years old. I'm from Long Island. and We're in Long Island. Dix Hills. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of it. Oh, yeah? Have yeah, not. Yeah. Uh, I used to work in Dix Hills. Oh. I was the Catholic boy growing up in a very Jewish neighborhood, and I think that's where a lot of the themes in my play comes from. Uh, I often feel I was born too late. Um, rather obsessed with history and historical figures, particularly women in history. So I think uh, that tends to be where I write from. What women's experiences have been in history, particularly the 30s and 40s, uh, and particularly also how, uh, in some ways, scarily not much has changed for them since the 30s and 40s. So I definitely want to ask you a little bit more about that because yeah. we were talking resonances, uh, some of the actors were, uh, uh, before we started the interview. Um, so uh, how long have you been writing? Is this your first play? Is this Where is this in your this is, personal canon? I would say this is my first play that is actually gaining some traction for me and, and sort of starting my playwriting career. Uh, this has been done internationally um, in Bermuda, Costa Rica, uh, it's going to be done in Minneapolis in May. Uh, that's not international. Um, <laughs> it's so very exotic it to us. It's super yeah. exotic. Where uh, it, tell us, we have we have a, a Minnesota listener. So oh. tell us where in Minneapolis. It's going to be at the Mixed Blood Theater. It is the inaugural production of Prime Productions. I thought it was a little cool. funny when they asked me for the rights because Prime Productions' mission is to produce theater for women uh, in their prime. And I thought, okay, so your first play is going to be by a 30-year-old man. Uh, and then they sort of told me that that was part of the reason. And I thought, oh, what, that's are, a huge compliment. Thank you. What does that mean? That well, I, I, think, uh, <laughs> I think that uh, it's material for women of a certain age and only women of a certain age, but yet a young man was the one sort of channeling these voices. I did have and that And I think question. that dichotomy. Just yeah. for me, like as a, as a similarly young man, uh, I read this play and I think, damn, I don't read, like this is a comment on you in a good way. Like I don't read your gender in the words. And I find that a lot yes. when I read plays about women fundamentally, but written by men. I can, I, it just, it stands out to me that it was a play written by a man. Didn't catch that. Where does that live yeah. for you? Um, writing women, do you find that you need to shape your voice? Uh, what, what is that process like? Uh, I, I don't. I, I don't know. Um, I, I guess. I guess I don't really think of gender either. I think that if you are a compassionate enough human being that you can re relate and write about other experiences besides your own, without it's sounding foreign. Sure. I think it just requires enough compassion. Um, just as, uh, you know, may maybe someday I might write about 
a Muslim experience, you know, I, I would have to do the research, but I, I don't, I, I don't know if it would be false because I'm not writing uh, about anything I don't just I don't agree with or anything I don't believe in. I'm just looking at it from a different uh, a different viewpoint. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, it's a little bit what Justin was talking about: the turning things ten degrees and taking a look. Yeah, we're, and we're we're finding that sort of like discussion of of looking into universality um, as it keeps cropping up with our playwrights, which I think is cool. Um, I, I wanted to point out one moment that happened just sort of to um, underscore that, and maybe you can talk about this a little, is it feels, um, there is the universal. We had a, a wonderful actress here today playing Gertrude Stein, um, Nikki Switzer, who got, uh, she had a beautiful monologue about normal. Um, and she really, we had, we stopped the recording briefly, she, she really got choked up right from the start of this. And Gertrude Stein, of course, uh, a, a lesbian, a bohemian, live, a, a, a Jewish in Nazi-occupied France, um, has these clear kind of senses of, of normalcy and what falls outside of that. Um, but the monologue itself doesn't necessarily mention any of those proper nouns, right? Um, so when you write something like that, does it stay within the realm of the specific? Are you putting yourself into Gertrude Stein thinking about her experience or are you kind of expanding outwards? Well, I think, I think part of what Gertrude's saying is there is no such thing as normal. Uh, so, you know, she, she says that she was standing outside yelling at the sky when what she should have been yelling at is herself. Because the thing is, you're so upset and so angry that you're not normal, but who is telling you what normal is? And I, I think as a gay man, uh, I have wondered what it would be like to, quote, be normal. And I think the older I get... Um, the more tired I get of that word. So I, I've started to realize that it doesn't exist. So I think in some ways, yes, I'm channeling Gertrude, but I think also there's a lot of me in there. And so maybe that's why it feels truthful um, and that you forget about gender. Because I think, uh, I think anybody who has ever felt abnormal would relate to what Gertrude's saying. What, historical fiction is so hard for me as a person who writes, just to conceptualize. I was going to go here next too, Oh, Ned. really? What a magic team. Wow, magic we work team. so well. Uh, Tell Duncan Duncan. I'm going to cut that. Hey, Duncan, not going to cut that. Uh, <laughs> man, we just kept it in there. Uh, I have so much trouble in the research phase and then in trying to put voice to those people. It's really hard for me to think in a voice outside myself. Where did this play, like what was the kernel that kicked this play off? Was it like, I would love to write about Gertrude Stein's experience? No, actually, uh, there's a Doctor Who episode. Uh, yes, go there is. on! I, I, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you the may, nerds always find each other. Yeah, you, yes. may, um, so you might remember the title of the episode, I'm blanking on it. It's something with, is it the Hornet and the Bee with Agatha Christie? Uh, and I thought, ooh, it would be fun to write a play about Agatha Christie. Now, really, Agatha Christie becomes the most minor character in Little Wars, which I found interesting. The other characters sort of took over as I was writing it. Um, I, I didn't know that the play would be about Lillian Hellman's Julia scandal until I finished it. Uh, I found myself sort of there with Lillian asking for the hat, and I thought... Oh, shit, how the hell did I get here? What do I do now? I don't know where this play is going. And I, I, I sort of 
I, this is embarrassing, but I actually went on Google and I, I, I Googled um, rivers named Julia. Um, and I found out there was one. And so this, it all sort of came together. That's extraordinary. But it, but it all started <laughs> with, uh, with Doctor Who and Agatha Christie, and I just thought it, it, was, it was fun. How much research do you do? You called a history well, buff, history nerd? I don't want to put words yeah, in your mouth. Um, a lot of things in this play were already knowledge for me. One of the first plays I ever saw on Broadway was Imaginary Friends by Nora Ephron. And uh, it imagines Lillian Hellman and Mary McCarthy in the afterlife. And part of the play is a trial where Muriel Gardner is on the stand testifying whether or not uh, Lillian Hellman stole her life story and called it Julia. And uh, I guess I was 14 when I saw that play. Um, That'll leave Never forgotten it. Yeah. yeah, left quite an impression. And it always resonated with me. And I think as I was writing this play and I found all these women in the room, without realizing it, I could feel Nora pushing me, you know, and, and, uh, and saying, oh, this is where you're going with it. You're going to answer those questions you've had since you saw my play. Yeah. And I think that's what happened. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's funny. I was inspired by another woman who left us too soon, so... Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Well, I think one of the greater, uh, will go down as one of the greater, already has, obviously very famous, yeah. but like, I, I think still gets undervalued as a writer of women's stories. Um, yeah, and I think she, uh, I think she would have gotten along really well with all the women in this play. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Except for Lillian, maybe. How, so how did the, did the play start? I mean, you set out to write a play about Agatha Christie, and did you say, well, it's definitely going to end up in the home of, or like, where, how did you end up with this cast list? Uh, I found reference just randomly what I'll do is I, I really like to find little tiny threads of history that's what interests me not like I wouldn't set out to write a biography of Lillian Hellman that would bore me I would rather find a tiny little moment in her life and that is what I would focus on uh, for example I have a play about Billie Holiday but what it focuses on is her rumored love affair with Tallulah Bankhead. And it's just, it's I'll that bring nugget it to the podcast, like, oh, please. Oh, send it to you. Note. <laughs> uh, I, I have seen that play, and it is absolutely stunning. Oh, Thank you, sir. Uh, yeah. uh, our, our lovely Mary Muriel Kristen was uh, Tallulah in the production I saw. Oh, and she was unbelievable, and the whole play is so good. So congratulations. Thank you. I, well, I will say shamelessly, it is published. It's called <laughs> Shades of Blue, The Shades Decline of and Fall of Lady Day. Fabulous. Please look this up online, um, everybody. But uh, yeah, I'd rather focus on little kernels of history. So I found this little nugget that Gertrude had once written Agatha Christie a correction, saying that uh, a poison she used in a story would not have actually worked. Uh, and I thought... <laughs> that is just so Gertrude. Yes. And before I knew it, I had Gertrude inviting Agatha over. And then I thought, well, who else would be at this dinner? And I thought of Dorothy Parker. And then I realized that if Dorothy Parker were in Europe at that time, she would have been in Europe with her best friend, Lillian Hellman. Now, I don't actually know whether Gertrude or Lillian liked each other, but I would imagine that one of the first out loud lesbians would not have been a fan of the author of The Children's Hour. Sure. Uh, and so I ran with it. I also knew that Gertrude and Ernest Hemingway were incredibly good friends, and Lillian Hellman and Ernest Hemingway were incredibly big enemies. So I thought, maybe they didn't actually know each other. Maybe they never actually had this dinner. But I think if they had, this might be how it went. Yeah, there, there would be animosity there. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's really fantastic. But I think part of the reason that they have animosity is because they also ultimately respect each other mm -hmm. and their talent. 
It's interesting. Uh, we were talking about this with the cast, but can you talk a little bit about, um, obviously, they're characters and you write them as characters and that, uh, you know, the, the, the content of that knows no gender. But um, this is a pre-feminist time that you're writing in, in, in many ways, pre-most of the waves of feminism anyway. Um, and these women are all, for the most part, childless. Um, uh, some of them divorced. Um, you discuss their abortions openly. You discuss, um, and, and they're all working women for the, which is still at, at that time sort of a, a novel, mm. right? Uh, can you talk a little bit about? Um, uh, I guess I want to know a little bit about how the nature of these characters shaped the dinner party a little bit. I think that this is a pretty, it's a standard form in that it's like, let's throw all these people at a dinner party. Yeah. But, but the difference there is you don't have a bunch of, of Wall Street men in the 1930s and 1940s. You have a group of, a group of women and that, how that shapes how they interact. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think ultimately they're all the same, but they're all incredibly different. And the reason is because they're all coming from different backgrounds of their womanhood in a way, if you will. Um, Bernadette certainly comes from the, the most different. She's a, the youngest, she's still really a child. Um, and B, she, though they've all at some point been affected by negatively men, she certainly has been the most negatively affected. But somehow, she seems to be the one who was the least bitter about it. Um, I realized that as I was working on it, that they're all survivors, but none of them realize it until they meet Bernadette. And I think in a way, at least for me as an outsider, uh, I think that's a lot about feminism too, um, that there are a lot of women who can feel beaten down by the state of the world or the way men, men treat them and some women retreat from it until they sort of find themselves with others who will not retreat from it. But I think that's not just feminism, I think that's really sort of any group. Um, and I think right now, we're starting to see that happening more and more and more. You know, you look at the Women's Day March on Inauguration Day, um, and I, I think that instead of retreating, we're moving, moving ourselves forward and into it. And I think that's what Bernadette does, and I think she inspires all of them to do it as well. I don't think they reach in their purses to give money because they feel sorry for Bernadette. I think they reach in their purses to give her money because they're inspired by her mm -hmm. and they want her to go on. There's a beautiful transition for me that I actually didn't get reading the play. I didn't get it till I heard it out loud. And it's watching them come to respect her as a person over the course of the show. She, she's the help when they walk in the mm -hmm. room and by the end she is, she's like a, 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 a a gathering force. She brings Gertrude and Lillian together. I mean, like, there's something about the way that she uh, interacts with that room that really that really blows my mind. Is Bernadette based on a historical figure? Or is no, that your creation? she's the only fictional character in the play. Interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can I um, jumping off what you were just saying yeah. um, about the Women's March? Can you talk a little bit about? Uh, and you you mentioned this in one of your emails when we were doing pre pro. Um, uh, the resonances of the play for you and what why it's why it's uh, I, I can think of a hundred reasons I want to know why you think it's valuable for 2017 yeah um, obviously a play about the, the, the Nazis hitting the center of the cultural world I did not uh, set out to write a timely play sure I never thought uh, that my play about the rise of Nazi Germany um, would be timely again and yet somehow it is 
uh, I'd prefer not to say any names, except um, I think that when uh, they talk about uh, a certain German leader and they say the man is a ninny, I think many of us are feeling that sentiment again. The man is a ninny. And uh, um, it's terrifying that this play is timely again. And sitting here today, hearing it for the first time since the election, uh, there were times where I have to say I wasn't enjoying this because I was sort of sad. Yeah. Uh, and the, the play, it just booked another production and I, I got this letter asking for the rights and the letter went on and on about how timely it was and how they thought the story needed to be told right now. And then instead of being really glad to have this royalty and this production happening, I, I sort of shut down reading the email. Uh, it scared me, and I, I know they say that writers are supposed to write, and we're supposed to resist, and that that's how we, how we do it. You know, in, in Travesties by Tom Stopper, James Joyce talks about yeah. the role of the artist against tyrants, and I have not really been able to write since the election. I'm really very blocked and having a hard time. There's a piece that I'm working on for a commission, and it's just sitting there. I had to ask for more time, because everything I write just it's really angry and one note and scared and I I can't really seem to get past it I'm hoping that uh, sitting here today and listening to this play will make me realize that I do have a lot of things to say about it besides ah! Uh, so, um, <laughs> Marcus, can you, uh, is that, is that scream going to be workable? Great. Good. Is, is our, is our rage workable? Great. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks so much. So I'm, I'm hoping that maybe it, uh, I can, I can now channel it now that today I sort of looked it in the face a little bit. Are you, uh, are you connected kind of with any of their authors? Is, do you have like a community that you write amongst? Do you have like a, like a, no, other people uh, you connect with a lot in the city? I had I had signed up for that uh, Day of Action theater th uh, festival that's yeah. mm -hmm. that's going around, uh, and I he was so lovely he gave me two extensions and I never submitted a play I just I couldn't couldn't do it yeah. don't know um, I, I wrote a little bit I just got back from England and I I wrote a little bit while I was there um, but for the most part it's it's been uh, the the Rachel Maddow show just on a constant loop in the background haunting me in my mind, I think. That's an interesting point, though. So can I um, ask you about that? That's, um, I, I think that there are folks asking a lot of questions about right now this, this flow of information in mm -hmm. versus creative output. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that's, how do you turn off? Do you have to turn off if you're generating other work of any kind, political or, or apolitical? Do you think that that... Um, do you think it is of value for writers or for you specifically when you're writing to to turn off or to have this flow of information in? I would Where's say that, that normally it's very helpful for me to have information coming in. Uh, sometimes when I'm blocked, I will use the first sentence of a newspaper article as a jumping start just to write as an exercise and that'll help. Um, that actually, my play Neat and Tidy, that's how I did it. And a lot of that play is chock full of monologues and the first sentence of every monologue is a newspaper headline. Um, but with, with this, I think because my focus lately has been historical fiction and my commission is a play that takes place during World War I, uh, I, I, I think the constant influx of information 
just saddens me and frightens me when I sit down to work. And so I want to get away from that. So instead of sitting down to work, I'm running out and going to other things and seeing other people's work. And that's great and inspiring and it's a nice escape. But um, it's not necessarily generative. No, yeah. it's it right now for me. It's it's been very hard. What have you seen that's been inspiring? Uh, honestly, the the thing that's been haunting me the most when I was in England, I saw JB Priestley's and Inspector Calls. It was something that somehow escaped me in school. I it had never been on a syllabi for me. I'd never read it, and I honestly thought I was just going to see some sort of Agatha Christie esque, you know, murder mystery, and that I I would just see some less something like The Mousetrap. But I, I was weeping in the audience, and I, I, um, I looked at that house full of wealthy businessmen and their wives, and I saw this gilded tower on Fifth Avenue um, that we won't say the name. Fifth Avenue, is that where it is? Yeah, Fifth <laughs> Avenue, yeah. Um, but I, I saw that tower, and I saw... Uh, the complete lack of awareness for other people who are different than you, uh, who have different means than you, who need different things than you. And um, that, that play hit me hard. And I thought for a little while when I saw it that it would make me write with purpose. But it, instead, I, uh, every time I sit down to write, I think of J.B. Priestley and I, I just hear him in my head saying, not enough purpose, hmm. not enough purpose. Hmm. So I think when I find the purpose, yeah. I'll start writing again. But right now, nothing feels purposeful enough. Sure. Dunkin' Donuts, if you can hear this and want to help any of us with our purpose by giving us more coffee <laughs> or sponsoring us, um, I don't yeah. know if that'll help. I don't know if that'll help you, yeah. Steven, but it's an idea and I'm throwing coffee it out works. there. And like we yeah. totally need coffee. Oh, constantly. Just like an IV drip. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, uh, or people listening in, if you have, I, you know, I think that is something that people have been hitting on since the election is we're talking about this idea of coffee, generating content, <laughs> um, <laughs> and coffee. Um, no, this idea of block versus information versus, you know, what you're, I, I'm, I'm feeling, well, we're going to make this about me for a second. I'm feeling similarly like, where do you, what do you, I, what am I going to write down? That isn't just a scream. Um, so I think that, I hope that this is something we keep exploring in our interviews. Maybe someone will come up with a good answer soon. I also like think it's, it's, it's been a really interesting theme to watch. I mean, listeners, you're now on your fourth playwright and in every single one, we end up talking politics at some point, or we end up talking about how the play's timeliness matters. Um, even in, in our farcical Troop 54, we touched on, you know, what, what the Russians felt about theater and we touched, we touched on what, what it means to be yourself and uh, I think there's a lot of I think we're finding a lot of things timely right now specifically because the world is very scary and I find that theater gives me access to a world I can't quite touch in my own head I need someone else to put it in front of me so I can recognize it and I, I was I mean what listening to this play I've read it four or five times now as we prepared for this this reading and yet there were so many nuggets in there that I couldn't I had never caught I'd never felt uh, I was laughing in places I didn't know I was going to. Mm -hmm. I think um, I think you've written a really beautiful play. Thanks. Can I ask you one final question, yeah. sort of on that note, um, more broadly than your own work, or it can be about your own work? What do you think? And this is something we've actually been toying with, and we can cut this out if it doesn't work. We've actually been toying with a, the idea of an episode, a non-play-based episode about the state of theater in the current political climate, and ba basically, like, what now? <laughs> uh, and I, I guess that's my question to you. What do you, what role do you think theater 
plays in in a world like the one in which we find ourselves? Uh, the, political theater, non-political theater, you know, what what value is there in Angels in America, but also what value is there in Mamma Mia? Like, what is that, See, now, where is that here? That's kind of where I'm stuck right now. Okay. You know, uh, in London, I saw a lot of really great, challenging theater that made me think and turn the world on its head for me, but I also saw some really light and fluffy things. And those light and fluffy things actually kind of made me angry. And I, I think right now what I'm struggling with is writing a play to write a play. And I feel that I keep telling myself what you write has to mean something right now. It has to accomplish something. And that's not always necessarily true. Sometimes it's nice to go to the theater and escape and see Mamma Mia. Um, but right now, I feel that our role has changed, especially now that they're trying to defund the National Endowment for the Arts. I feel that we have to show that we are essential as artists. So I want to be essential, but I, I can't seem to channel that just yet, at least currently. It's sometimes hard to write when you've given yourself a call. Yeah. It's really yeah. hard to fit yourself into a box that yep. you feel, I, I get that, that's hard. I, and that's, and I know that in my heart, you know, but I, I, I can't seem to, everything I put on the page doesn't somehow, it, it doesn't feel important enough that I, ha I have to say something about what I'm feeling right now. And again, I'd scream, but Marcus might uh, <laughs> have to edit it out. If I may, uh, Stephen, I, I think it's uh, really rad how honest you're being about this about this idea of, of block versus you know like versus yeah. out, output. So a thank you for thank that. You. And B if if I'm oh if I may, when somebody with your mind and talent figures it out, <laughs> I'm I'm we're all fucking ready for what comes next because <laughs> truly this is you are um, we're very lucky to have thank to you. have your play and to have you. Thank you so thank very you. much. Thanks. Thank yeah. you, guys. And, um, Where can we find you online? Exactly. Uh, or anywhere. Where can on, we find uh, you? Twitter, yeah. at SomedayBoy, S-O-M-E-D-A-Y-B-O-Y. And then uh, I am one of those people who have yet to get my own domain. I know. Um, but I'm StephenCarlMcCaslin.Weebly.com. Yeah. We are a Weebly-based. Yeah, I've got to get my domain. i got to get it. i got to get it. Thanks, um, Weebly. Yeah, thanks, Weebly. Weebly, you want to sponsor us? And um, you can come visit me at the Drama Bookshop, where I am the events manager. So yes, if you're by here, the way, say that's hi. where we are. We would like to thank the Drama Bookshop oh, so, so much. Thanks. Our favorite people in New York. Thank you, Stephen, thank for having you. us. Thank you. How delightful. What, who else do we have to mention? We have to say thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, The Drama Bookshop. Um, thank you to our incredible cast that was here earlier for us, but two weeks ago for you. Please check out our website for more information on Stephen's play, on Stephen, on all of our wonderful cast. And you can go to our website at www.chargingmoosemedia.com slash at the table podcast. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Bye. Oh, wait, wait. Don't forget to go online, like mm. us. Uh, share Rate, us, review, us. subscribe. Uh, we are on Twitter at at the table plays, which is different than at the table podcast because it didn't fit. What? Uh, and we are on Facebook at at the table plays as well. And uh, again, if you're an actor or a writer, especially writers, um, and you are interested in having your work uh, on the podcast, there is a little website on our website, and you can form it out. on our website. No, it's a website on our website. I'm calling it. <laughs> you heard me. You can go on our website for more information on that. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you.